The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. A $1.8 billion fraud at a branch at Punjab National Bank is rippling through India's financial and political system. And the United Kingdom is becoming the battleground for Disney, Comcast, and Fox to fight over the future of media and entertainment business. These are the stories we'll be tackling on this week's Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Saba, and my co-host is, as always, Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. G'day. We turn first to a growing crisis in India, sparked by fraud at a branch of Punjab National Bank. For the lowdown, we hand the mic over to our colleagues in Asia. Hi, I'm Jeff Goldfarb, head of Asia for Breaking Views, and I'm here with Yuna Galani, our columnist in Mumbai. And she's been following a kind of amazing story where a single bank branch in the city has spawned a $1.8 billion scandal that has spread across the financial community and indeed all the way up to the corridors of power in the state government. Yuna, uh, why don't you talk us through, I mean, what exactly happened, what we know so far? Yeah, look, Jeff, this is really an astonishing story. One of India's largest state control banks uh, last week reported a $1.8 billion fraud. Now, that number would be huge anywhere in the world, but particularly in the context of a, of a poor country like India, uh, you know, this is this number is huge. So much so that many of us thought it was like a typo or something, you know, as in maybe they meant rupees instead of dollars. But, you know, alas, no. Um, so, you know, another way to put it into context, you know, that the value of this fraud is almost twice the value of, of Punjab National Bank, which is the, the bank in question, that, that bank's market value. So it's just it's just huge on on every measure. And the man allegedly at the center of this scandal is someone called Nirav Modi, a diamond billionaire jeweler to Hollywood stars. You know, if he wasn't well-known across the social spectrum in India before, he is now, because the scandal has dominated uh, the front pages of all the business-to-gossip newspapers here for, you know, for more than a week. And so he's very much become the new poster boy of India's bad debt crisis. And... Uh, you know, this isn't just a, a problem for one bank. I mean, we've seen this fraud come out at one bank. But the, the reason this story is so significant is because people are worried that this is the sign of much deeper rot across a whole system of 20-odd state banks that account for, like, two-thirds of assets in the country. Right. Well, let's, I mean, let's, I mean, before, I mean, I think there's so many aspects of this that we want to get to, but I mean, I guess in the first instance, we should, we should note, of course, that, um, that Modi is alleged and accused in this. He, his lawyer has denied uh, his involvement in this, uh, but he is, of course, as you say, sort of at the center of this. As you say, this has spread into something, a much bigger discussion, but what exactly, what exactly happened here? What what what's what is being accused, and how how do we get to this one point eight billion dollar figure that yeah. everyone is using? Yeah. I mean, look. So, so essentially, like, how did this scam work? You know, the bank itself has blamed two rogue junior employees of a single bank branch in in Mumbai, uh, and they say that they issued unauthorized letters of credit. Didn't. To, didn't enter them into the bank's core system and and then transmitted these letters of credit overseas, mostly to Indian lenders, using the bank's swift messaging system. 
And then those banks overseas then lent against the guarantees. And that's apparently how they managed to keep this undetected for seven years, because they were, they were using the swift messaging system to send the guarantees overseas, but not entering into the bank's core recording system. <laughs> it's quite extraordinary. Yeah. As you say, I mean, this 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 all happened. I mean, as far as we know, at this stage, it sort of happened at one branch of Punjab. But the backdrop, you know, which you've written about quite a bit is is this massive recapitalization of India's banks, of which Punjab was due to or is getting some of those funds. And but how does this kind of you know, how is this a problem that goes beyond Punjab, I guess, which is sort of what you, where you've really right, focused right. your your attention. So, so this, the timing of this is really important, and and it is really important to understand why this scandal has come as such a shock to India and beyond. Um, you know, it comes just after India has gone through this multi-year exercise of trying to clean up bank balance sheets. You know, these banks are stuffed with bad debts mostly the result of tycoons running roughshod over these institutions before the country had a proper bankruptcy law, which it now has, and that was introduced last year. And it also comes after India has agreed a $32 billion government-backed bailout. So, you know, like, the impression this creates is that, that, that you know, a lot of poor people are just sort of suffering in their everyday lives, and, and these rich tycoons, despite this huge, like, effort to clean up the system have just carried on in their old bad ways regardless. And and the and the other reason that this is really important is because obviously the health of these state banks is vital for, to supporting a broader recovery and economic growth. And economic growth has not been great of late. I mean, it's good compared to like other parts in the world, but India really needs to, instead of growing at 6%, it needs to grow at like, you know, almost 8 or 10% to really create the, the number of jobs that they need to support. So, you know, the health of these banks is vital to, you know, the broader economic story as well. I mean, the government obviously needs to get to the bottom of, of sort of what happened and who's culpable and, and uh, you know, before maybe it addresses some of these bigger issues. But there is, I mean, the finance minister did come out and sort of start pointing fingers um, at various places, pretty much uh, almost everywhere, I guess, up and down the line, including auditors and regulators and bank officials. But, but this does go into... I mean, this is a state-controlled bank, so I mean, this the state itself has to bear some of the responsibility here, right? Right. Like you know, one of the reasons that the risk controls of these banks are so lousy, and that is really the problem here, is the risk controls were just terrible. One of the reasons they are so lousy is because they are not well managed, and they are not well managed because they don't get to choose their own CEOs, they don't get to choose their own directors. And they can't even fix their own like financial incentive systems within the organization. So all of these problems stem from the fact that these banks have majority government ownership. Now, politicians have constrained themselves, you know, politicians basically constrain the way these banks are run. And it makes them enormously uncompetitive versus their private sector peers. Now, you know, Modi's government, to be fair, you know, they have been trying to limit this interference. You know, they no longer tell banks who to lend to and at what rate, but it's not enough. You know, much more needs to be changed, changed. And this is really evidence of that. You know, and it's hard to see how you fix this stuff without putting banks at arm's length from, from ministers or really privatizing them. I mean, and that's the thing that people 
really want to see now in India. You know, for many years, the big thing that people were like, you know, really wanted was a bankruptcy law. And India now has a bankruptcy law. And that's really good because it means that some of the power has been shifted from these like these big tycoons and, and more towards creditors who really didn't have any power before. But the next thing people really want to see is, is privatization. And that's something that I think we will only see if Modi wins a strong majority in a second term. Um, and we're due to have general elections here by April next year. And so that's when we'll really see if, well, if I mean, we can, Modi, if we can like, um, take this next leg. Yeah, I mean, but the prime minister has obviously been trying to reform quite a few different areas. I mean, how how big a blow is this to his efforts, this whole scandal, you know, that, that obviously is, you know, affecting such a huge portion of the banking industry? I think this scandal is a big problem. And the reason I think it's a big problem is because this is a government that has invested an extraordinary amount of energy into trying to root out corruption at the highest levels, in trying to root out illicit or so-called black money, and to also change the country's mindset. You know, one of the big problems that people think about when they think about India is corruption. And so this is a government we finally have that is trying to change that. And don't forget, you know, corruption scandals were the very reason Mr. Modi's predecessor was ousted. So, so this whole corruption crackdown has been the driving force for many of the bold initiatives that we have seen from this government. Well, everything from demonetization, which was, you know, that extraordinary moment where India banned all the large banknotes in the country overnight, caused massive disruption. Um, everything from that to this, you know, this the, the rollout of a nationwide, uh, we call it here, a goods and services tax. Um, a lot of this stuff has been really disruptive, you know, for the common voter, for people who have to go and queue outside banks for hours on end because they, you know, they can't get access to cash. And, and, and these scandals, um, I, I think, you know, as I said before, like it makes it look like the rich have just carried on regardless in their old ways as the common voter has suffered. So, you know, that's a problem. And then the, the second problem is really that, you know, Nehru Modi is now overseas. And that makes it doubly hard for India to show that it's taking a tough approach with these tycoons. It's a bit like this beer baron Vijay Malia. You know, he fled to London after he faced fraud charges relating to the collapse of his Kingfisher airline. And India is now trying to extradite him and make an example of him to satisfy the masses who want to see rich tycoons held to account. And I, and I think that is essentially the problem for Modi now is because you know, he needs to kind of show some progress. And I think this scandal in terms of where, you know, the public think about how much progress we've made on this anti-corruption crackdown, you know, I think this sets us back a long way. Well, how, I mean, how much confidence do you have that this whole episode, I guess in some due amount of time, will be a wake-up call to actually privatize the banks or to take some other significant step to address all the issues that you just pointed out? It's funny. Everybody knows that privatization is the real solution to fixing the Indian banking system. But privatization is, you know, is, is politics as well. And um, these banks are um, seen as lenders that can never go bust. They are seen as... Um, huge supporters of the economy. They have a huge labor force. They have unions. 
So, you know, I think everybody knows that privatization is the solution. They've known that for sort of many years. But um, affecting that change will require a strong leader with uh, a strong government. And, and this government is already sort of dabbling in privatization. They're trying to privatize their national carrier, Air India, um, which is basically a globe-trotting reminder of India's inefficiencies, you know, like $10 billion of debt, hasn't made profits for like a decade. Um, so they're trying to privatize that. And if they can do that, and, and they want to do that this year, if they can do that, that will give them a sense of whether it's going to be possible to privatize elsewhere. And the next obvious place to privatize would be the bank. So, um, but that's not going to happen. Uh, you know, like that's not something that this government can really raise in the run-up to an election, and that's why it would have to happen after an election, and only if this government can secure a stronger majority of the banks. And it would also require a change of law, which, which, means, which means that strong majority is really necessary. All right. Uh, there'll be plenty to follow on this saga, no doubt, and I'm sure we'll discuss it again soon. Thank you very much, Una. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Jeff and Una. Very interesting developments there. We'll be sure to keep our eye on it. Next, we'll turn to media and entertainment. Comcast chief Brian Roberts is trying to spoil Rupert Murdoch and Bob Iger's party. Earlier this week, he made a £22 billion offer for Sky in the UK, topping by 16% what Fox has had on the table for some time. And just to complicate matters, Sky is part of the package of assets Murdoch has agreed to sell to Disney. Jen, can you make any sense of the plot on this for us? Um, So it's awfully confusing. Um, So... Let's just start with Rupert Murdoch and his quest for Sky, which has been a longtime quest. 21st Century Fox, which is the company that his family controls, they own 39% of Sky. And they tried to buy it in full several years ago when the phone hacking scandal was going on, right? And they got right. basically so they got down. slapped down. Yeah. They're like, no way. In 2016, they went back after it again. They won full control of Sky. So that bid is still out there, and it is waiting for UK regulators to say this is okay. And they there are all sorts of problems with it at the, at the moment. And they're dragging their heels or feet or however you want to put it. It has not been rubber stamped. So right. what what is unclear to me is if Disney, which is buying um, most of Fox's cable stations, um, their movie studio, and then their international assets, I don't know how all of Sky figures into this deal. Did Disney, the $52.4 billion that they are going to give to Fox, does that include just the 39% mm-hmm. stake? Or did they somehow calculate that they were going to end up getting the entire swath of Sky? Right. So it's very confusing. We don't know. Okay. Enter Brian Roberts, who has always, I think, had a, a lifelong, closely watched relationship with Disney. They tried to take over Disney at one point. That was rebuffed in a hostile takeover. So the fact that Disney is trying to get pieces of Fox, that was not going to sit well with Brian Roberts. So he's trying to stop this deal, the, the, the bigger deal, the Disney-Fox deal, as a way to try and, what, just stop Disney or to have another run at Disney? or what Well, no. Think? I mean, so a couple of things. One is that this is one of their major rivals. In fact, they've used, Comcast has used the Disney playbook. They have theme parks. They went off and bought a movie studio. They have a broadcast arm. They also have cable distribution. Mm. That's originally what they were, cable. So... Um, you know, they're looking at Disney and then they're thinking, we don't want one of our rivals to get bigger and when everybody's getting bigger. Mm. And so I'm sure there is some thought process when you see this. They're like, wait a minute, we want in on this game, too. So um, they had reportedly 
uh, given a bid for Fox's assets at $60 billion, which was higher than what yep. Disney ended up with. And now um, they're saying, hey, listen, you know what? We're just going to go after all of Sky. And that's going to certainly complicate uh, the situation between Disney and Fox. How much does it matter, though? I mean, if, if Disney were to walk away from Sky, is it that big of a deal for them? No. I mean, this is what's unclear to me as well, is the rationale for owning Sky. First of all, it is a satellite pay TV company. Mm. Satellite pay TV here in the United States is not doing well. Yeah. It's, on a, it's on a decline. And I can't imagine how it's doing any better in Europe. So this is kind of a dying asset. What's kind of interesting about Sky is it's also considered pay TV and there's like a, a content element to mm-hmm. it. Um, so why everybody's kind of jockeying for Sky is, is I have no idea. Mm. And, you know, the... Part of the rationale is that, okay, we have an internet. We will have an international footprint if we get Sky. And I guess that's fine. They'll, they'll be in Europe, mm. but they'll be holding this satellite TV company. Yeah, I mean, shareholders of Comcast aren't particularly happy. Uh, shares are down about around 7% since this came out. That's about $12.5 billion. Yeah. Um, which is, it just strikes me as, as rather bizarre that they would do this. But then the numbers don't seem to stack up. And, and Comcast, and also to keep in mind, they're really smart. Uh, buyers, they when they went and bought NBC Universal, they bought them at a low point when GE was mm. desperate to get rid of it. So they're pretty savvy. So this, to me, if if that's the case, kind of says like, wait a minute, what's going on here? So I mean, the the, the one who's leaving Sky out of it is that the, the of the three American firms, Fox has suffered the least. It's just down four percentage. This is down five percent. So I mean, Murdoch has the ability here to, to to make some coin either way, right? Because he can still sell the rest of the assets to Disney. And he can get you know, a bump up in, if he decides, you know what, I'm just going to give this to Comcast. Let them deal with it. It's, they're offering far too much. I'll take the money. I'll get a bump up. My shareholders will get a bump up. Disney can, has one less thing to worry about. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's definitely, I guess, could be one way out of this is that, you know, Rupert Murdoch said, hey, I'm just going to go sell this to a premium to mm. Comcast. Now, what happens with Disney and their $52.4 billion um, deal? I don't know. Do they renegotiate the price of that? Um, I I have no idea where they, Sky they, fits into this. They could just renegotiate it and take out, well, again, assuming we think it's for the 39% or the 100%, depending, you renegotiate it down. But it means they spend less money. They get um, there's less management distraction from having to deal with a somewhat different asset in the UK, right? Um, and it could well be that Comcast gets stuck owning something it never really wanted to own <laughs> <laughs> at a very a very low uh, uh, return on investment. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jen, you're just a font of knowledge and information on this one this week. But basically, you're, you're, what you're outlining is that there's just there's so many moving parts and and just not enough information, right? So, are there any cost cuts that Comcast can make, for example, to make this deal make financial sense? They're not even really outlining them enough. No, they? they're not outlining it. That doesn't mean necessarily that there aren't any cost cuts. I mean, you could understand why they would be reluctant yeah. to do that in this day and age. Um, but I mean, again, stepping back, my overall thesis is just this is pure chaos and mm. um, M&A chaos. And I think people are kind of just doing deals because it's a frenzy. In the entertainment and, world. In the entertainment world, because it's a maturing business on, on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have, um, honestly, players like Netflix killing it. Mm. And um, they're late to the game. On, mm. on streaming video, and they yeah. realize it. And I think this is part of the rationale behind all these deals. All right, Jim, well, I somehow have the feeling that we're going to be back talking about this quite a lot in the future. Thanks, thanks for that very much. 
That's our show for this week. Thanks to Jeff Goldfarb and Una Galani for coming on from Asia. Kudos also to our producers, Freddie Joyner, Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. And our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Subscribe to the Views Room on iTunes and please do share your opinions about our show. And join us again next week for another edition.